Today's sermon text is Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 7. It can be found on page 555 in the Bibles in the rack in front of you. This is the word of the Lord. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen is better to offer sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, but a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me as we uh, prepare to dive in? Father, this, this is your word. We pray that by your spirit you would help us to comprehend it. Help me to explain it, to illustrate it, and to apply it to our lives and help us to receive it and then work it out um, as we leave from this place. Let it have a profound effect, not just on us, but all those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. um, How many of you have been through the Amsterdam airport? Let me get a show of hands. Amsterdam airport. Okay. For whatever reason, Amsterdam is like hub of international travel. Been through there more times than I can remember. Been stuck there. I've slept there. Don't have a lot of fond memories of that airport. But if you've ever spent any considerable time there, then you likely have something ringing in the back of your mind. Anybody, anybody got a little phrase that comes to mind that just echoes throughout the Amsterdam airport? Any of those that have been? Mind your step. Anybody remember that? Mind your step. Endless miles of those moving walkways and a Siri-like lady with an accent telling you over and over, mind your step. Uh, it's similar to uh, another phrase that comes to mind if you've ever spent any time in London, maybe ridden on the tube. What, what is that one? Anybody got that one? Mind the gap. That's right. I don't, I don't have a good British accent, so I'm not going to butcher it. Uh, mind the gap. So what are both of those sayings pointing to? Danger. Caution, right? Don't fall in the gap between the train and the platform. Don't fall on your face as you get on the moving walkway. Um, those sayings are there for a reason. Okay, that's they have T-shirts that say, Mind your gap, and that little lady sticks in my head because of so many hours in the Amsterdam airport. Uh, because there's danger that if you do not heed those, um, something will happen to you if you ignore them. So, uh, today's text is a version of those sayings, but one with much more gravity uh, than mind your gap or mind your step. 
Um, if you don't mind your step in Amsterdam, you may fall flat on your face. Uh, but if you don't guard your steps according to Scripture, as our text says, then you stand to meet God in a way that you really don't want to meet God. What this text is telling us in a really unique way is that what we are doing today, I'm going to try to make the case that what we are doing today, what we are doing right now, this has a level of danger to it. This, in certain ways, is a dangerous place to be right now. Eugene Peterson, I think, put it well. He said, sometimes I think that all religious sites should be posted with signs reading, Beware the God. The places and occasions that people gather to attend to God are dangerous. They're glorious places and occasions and true, but they are also dangerous. Danger signs should be placed as they are at a nuclear power station. Peterson makes that point and he goes on to say he's talking about religion, the danger of religion, that religion has led a lot of people to their death. Um, if you've not been here or guest with us, welcome. Uh, I, I promise I'm not talking about a type of danger where you need to flee and the building's going to fall in or something is about to happen. Just stick with us. Uh, Lord willing, we are in a, in a physically safe place at the moment, um, but we could be in a spiritually dangerous place. Uh, we have been and continue to walk through the book of Ecclesiastes. This is week five, if I'm not mistaken, in what is supposed to be a 12-week journey. Still on schedule, okay? Still on schedule, five weeks in uh, at this point. That's a big deal to me. I don't know if it is to you. Uh, but this book as a whole, we've, we've said it uh, repeatedly, I think, helps us to know how to live wisely, how to live the good life, even in the midst of a often confusing, confounding, messy, broken world. This book helps us to know how to live in light of reality that can be very difficult at times. And in this journey, we have visited a number of areas of life. We've looked at work, we've looked at uh, pleasure, we've even looked at, 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 at wisdom and study, to name a few. Now we have our author, who is known as the preacher, he's going to take a visit to the temple. And he's going to aim his gaze at worship. So I've talked about work. I've talked about pleasure. I've talked about wisdom. I'm going to talk about those things again. But right now I'm going to talk about the temple and I'm going to talk about worship. And to help us get in the right frame of mind here, I think he's doing a lot to help us to see the difference between what, using his language, what I'll call foolish worship and authentic worship. He's differentiating between what would be foolish worship and authentic worship. And he is saying it can be dangerous to worship. So you need to heed my warning. He's saying hypocritical, inauthentic worship is not only vain, to use the overall message of Ecclesiastes, it's not only vain, it's also dangerous. You heard there in verse 1 about the sacrifice of fools. Okay, that's where I'm getting that language, sacrifice of fools. That's not a denial of the value of sacrifice, neither in an Old Testament sense when they made certain sacrifices, nor in a New Testament sense when, when you offer your life as a sacrifice to God. He's not denying the value of sacrifice. He is critiquing, that language is a critique of superficial religion that just goes through the motions. A religion that includes rituals with a lot of words, but real, really no awareness of God. The sacrifice of fools is really nothing more 
to explain it as best I can, the sacrifice of fools is really nothing more than an attempt to sacrifice, uh, to, to satisfy a conscience or silence a conscience and appease a God. Okay. The sacrifice of fools is nothing more than an attempt to silence a guilty conscience and appease an angry God. But here's here's where it gets dangerous. God does not play around with inauthentic worship. And it's clear throughout Scripture. God says in 1 Samuel, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen better than the fat of rams, which would have been a sacrifice at that time. As Isaiah 1, we hear God's disdain for empty, hypocritical, vain sacrifices. You read Isaiah 1, you realize God does not like hypocritical worship, inauthentic worship. This text falls within these truths. But here, the author of Ecclesiastes doesn't just give us a critique of what the Lord doesn't want. We get more of the side of what the Lord does want, even if it's implied. He's not just critiquing what the Lord doesn't want. He's giving us some insight into the type of worship that the Lord does want. So, Foolish worship versus authentic worship. That's kind of what we're looking at. We want to avoid one and we want to lean into the other. Hopefully that goes without saying. We don't want to be foolish worshipers. We want to be authentic worshipers. What does God have to say about how we lean into one and sort of run from the other? So I'm going to frame our time, the rest of our time, with four very simple exhortations. As we consider how to avoid foolish worship... And lean into authentic worship. How is the Lord going to exhort us to do that for from this text that we're going to use to frame this? Uh, and by the way, I just I've had this has actually been pointed out to me. I can't remember who, who did it that knew this text. And I just want to point it out to you. The end of verse two is not lost on me. It says, therefore, uh, let not let your words be few. Okay, there's irony in that. I realize the irony of the length of my sermon on a text that says you shouldn't have many words. Okay, while I don't think that this text necessarily applies to my preaching, I acknowledge the irony so that hopefully I will avoid some of the jokes from our our more, you know, tactfully sarcastic members that pay close attention. All right. First exhortation, pulling straight from the text in order to avoid foolish worship, you must guard your steps. Guard your steps. All right. A little bit of, little bit of work uh, to bridge the gap here before we kind of get into guard your steps. We've got to bridge the da- gap between Old Testament context to where we now stand in redemptive history to kind of make uh, sense of this. So the text says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So what's he talking about there that's historically unique? What is the house of God in this context? It's, it's the temple, okay? If our author here is Solomon, okay, there's debate on that, but we, we reason that it was Solomon, then we know that he has very intimate knowledge of the temple as he was the one that led the building of the temple in that day. So we are talking here about the central point of Old Testament religious life, the temple of God, the place of worship, the place of God's presence, the place where sacrifices were made for sins, the house of prayer, and on and on. Everything in Old Testament religious life centered around the temple of God, like physically, like literally centered around it too. Well, last I checked, we do not have a centralized temple to go to. 
And we don't have to take a pilgrimage to the Middle East to visit a structure that all Christians have to go to to follow this text. Though this text would have broader application, what I want to do is just sort of try to quickly, and when I say quickly, there's just, there would be a lot of content on this, but I'm going to do it rather quickly, connect the Old Testament temple to what we are doing right now in terms of this act of corporate worship. So I want to kind of bridge that gap. Okay, if you've got an island over here and it's the temple and here we are in corporate worship, let's, let's take the bridge over and see how those connect. If you are not familiar with the Bible, Jesus is the key that seemingly unlocks everything. Jesus changes everything. So Jesus said several important things related to the temple. All right. One in particular, as he was approaching his death, he told those in charge, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. In context, he's referring to what himself, his body. He would be killed three days later. He would rise from the dead. That ended up happening. He said, you do it. This is what's going to happen. And then it happens. In terms of the material temple, he's basically reinforcing something he said somewhere else. He had already said that in him, something greater than the temple had arrived. You see, the material temple at that time would later be destroyed. And Jesus, through his death and resurrection, becomes the new place where everyone would meet and fellowship with God. And it's through this that we get what is referred to as the church, meaning the New Testament people of God. Ephesians makes this really clear. We're being built, the church is being built into a dwelling place of God. Through through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, He's now the meeting place of God. We get access to God through Him, and then we have the formation of the church through what Christ did and those He rescued. And then you have this language in Ephesians. We as the church are members of the household of God. So there's that language again that we see similarities to there in verse 5. So you no longer have a single temple in Jerusalem. You now have a gathered people centered around Jesus, indwelt by the Spirit. And these gathered people that are centered around Jesus are made visible through what we call local churches, which is what we are one of. Okay? So verse 1 says, guard your steps as you enter into the physical temple for God's worship. For us, guarding our steps as you come together as the household of God for his worship. Okay? So that was, that was a, a, that was like a, a, a sprint across a really long bridge because there's a lot that gets you from Old Testament temple to New Testament church. David Brown is actually our resident temple scholar. So when we get done, he can explain more of that to you. But hopefully you see the connection and that that's not too uh, vague or ambiguous for you. Um, the aim of this sermon is not to connect the temple to the church and explain all of that. It's not the aim. I just want you to be able to see the application for us. Okay. But I will address one matter that I think it comes to my mind, at least, and hopefully I'm not putting it in your mind. When we think about Old Testament temple, we think about New Testament church. What about the building? What about this building? Okay, we call buildings of this nature what? Churches, right? Okay, that's a little misleading because it's using a biblical concept but applying it in a misleading way. Okay, 
Doesn't mean it's wrong to call this a church, but it's just misleading. Okay. Anyone, I, I tried to rehearse the little goofy thing we learned as kids. It's probably still misleading our kids, right? This is the church. Okay, there is the steeple. Open the door and what? We got the people. Yeah, right? Still leading our kids astray. All right, we got to teach them better theology than that. Here's the deal. Buildings are not unimportant. So don't hear me say that. I am not anti-building, even if some of you think I'm anti-building. You do realize I build buildings for a living. Like if I were anti-building, that's like a huge contradiction to what I do and I'm not going to make it. So, but this building like a home is not of much use without people. Okay. This is not a holy place. This is not a special structure in and of itself. And I'm not just picking on this building. This would go for any church building. Okay. Any holiness that attaches to this place comes and leaves with us. Just like a house is not a home If there's no family living in it, the building is of no significance without us. I heard Alistair Begg comment uh, to his church about their building. And if you know Begg, you can hear the Scottish accent in the background. It's like always a hint of sarcasm in it for some reason. He said this about the building. It doesn't ring my bell, float my boat or do anything for me at all. The only significance that attaches me to this place is because you are here and we are here together. Sounds much better when he says it. Hopefully you get the point. I probably didn't need to press that point home, but I did anyway. So we are looking at exhortations that we are relating to corporate worship today. Okay, there's broader application to this text, but we are thinking in the direction of the church gathered for the worship of God. Okay, that that's where we're aiming these exhortations, the church gathered for the worship of God. And the first exhortation is guard your steps. And I'll say this in terms of mood or tone or emphasis of the text when it comes to worship. This is not all the Bible has to say. There is a a weightiness and a gravity to this text uh, or it puts a level of weightiness and gravity on our approach to worship. But the Bible has a lot to say about the worship of God's people about how they conduct themselves in worship about God's worship and you got to take all of those texts and put them together sort of a, a, a systematic look at what the Bible says about worship this text has a particular aim I would say if you start to mix all the texts together it's it's you could conclude that worship should be a mix of both gravity and gladness both gravity and gladness okay You should walk away, I think you should walk away, we should walk away from this text with a little more feeling of gravity, but that does not negate the gladness. Just like if we walk away just ecstatic with gladness, that should not negate the the gravity, okay? Those things can actually be held in tension. So what does it mean to guard your steps in the presence of God? Uh, Moses comes to mind, okay, famous story of the burning bush, okay, what did he have to do as he approached the burning bush? Take shoes off, like mind your steps when you when you're going into God's presence. To paraphrase one commentator on this, the preacher is telling us to be careful. To think deeply before you enter worship and about what you are doing. There's an implied level of preparation in this text. There's an implication of preparation leading up to worship in this text. Okay. 
We, we can't view this as if we're just dropping by to see a neighbor to have a chat or passing time with a friend. We are going to a place where the Almighty Creator stoops down to meet with us. So watch how you walk. I heard one person say, um, thought it was, it was fitting, he said, don't text and worship. He's like, in modern terms, I think the author is telling us, don't text and worship. I, I don't want to see the video of myself, but I would love to see a video of you guys and others of you texting and living your life. Because it would, it, it, I think if we, if somebody videoed us with our phones over a period of time and we were to watch that, we would, we would probably cringe, we would probably laugh, and we may even cry and seek repentance if we truly see how we interact with the world on our phones. From how foolishly we can walk into things or almost walk into things because we're paying no attention to where we're going. To how we can ignore people, ignore our kids, ignore family members, ignore co-workers, ignore strangers. How we can switch lanes or even leave the road because we think the text is so important or that email is so important. The devices that fit in our pockets or purses in so many ways alter and control our lives and distract us from life. Don't text and worship. Guard your steps. Watch your walk when you come to worship. You know, walking or stepping in Scripture is oftentimes synonymous with just living, okay? It's a very general metaphor to you to talk about how we live our lives. Paul urges the Ephesians, so he unpacks who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And he gets to the midway of his letter to the Ephesians and he urges us to walk in a manner that is worthy. Okay, That just means live. Live this way. Live in a manner worthy of who Christ is and what Christ has done. So I think at one level this is a general exhortation to examine the totality of your life when it comes to worship. How do you approach worship? How do you think about it? How do you understand it? Okay, How do you prepare for it? How do you engage in it? How do you respond to it? That's like just total big picture examining of life. So there's a general exhortation to the text, but there's also probably a little bit more specific aim here. So I think verse 1 and verse 7 kind of bracket the text and are tied together. Where guarding your steps relates to God being the one that is to be feared. So the more specific exhortation relates to not approaching God too casually. Don't approach God too casually. We'll we'll cover that fear part near the end. You know, I thought this week it's just ironic that, you know, some churches will put it on their sign, but it's on on a lot of websites. It's talking about casual worship. Like we, We have casual worship. And I thought about just the irony of that in light of this text. They're talking about clothing, right? They're talking about clothing, and they could be talking about atmosphere or whatever, and you just, you just, you open up Ecclesiastes 5 and you go, that's dangerous. Like, be careful with that language. That's a little misleading. Like, do we really want to have casual worship? So first exhortation, guard your steps. Guard your steps. And I think, again, this, this relates to the end of the text, which we'll get to, but it's also guarding your steps, I think, is explained by the middle of the text. Like, okay, guard your steps. Be, be cautious, examine my whole life as I approach that. What do I know about worship? How do I, how do I view it? How do I come into it? How to prepare for it? How to respond to it? 
But I think we're given some more specifics about what guarding your steps looks like in the middle of the text. Meaning the next couple of exhortations give us a little more detail. So think about it like this. Exhortations one and four today are related in similar ways and connected together. While exhortations two and three just give more detail about how you follow through with one and four. If that makes sense. Now, before we move to exhortation two, I want to point something out. Note that verse 1 says, guard your steps when, when you go to the house of God. There are no throwaway words in Scripture. It does not say if, it says when. It is assumed that you'll go to the house of God. When it comes to the worship of God, repetition is important and even commanded. I think one of the things we have to get our heads around is, and hearts, is that we are not going to walk out of every worship service in our lives with an emotional high. Sometimes you will, sometimes you won't. Emotions are easy to manipulate. You don't believe me? Just go to a concert with me or a football game. Okay? The culture knows how to manipulate emotions. The church has co-opted a lot of that in so many ways and go, we can manipulate some emotions if we just need to. Now, emotions are not unimportant. Not unimportant, but just not ultimate. Okay, They're not unimportant, but they are not ultimate. Sometimes it's going to seem like you just didn't get much out of worship. But to that I would say this. Yes, it could have been the gathering itself. If you didn't get much out of it, it could have been the gathering itself. Those leading the gathering could have done little to help you hear from God and respond to God. They could have done that. They could have helped you. They could have done little to help you hear from God and respond to God. But it could also be you. It could be the fact that your steps have not been guarded. You could be texting and worshiping. So you can't judge the value of worship simply based on your emotional response to it. Everybody got that? And in terms of the repetitious nature of worship, the fact that we do it weekly and we seemingly do the same thing weekly, that's the way God designed it. God wants you coming back to the well again and again and again because he knows you're going to dry up and you're going to need it and you're going to need to come back again. All right, next exhortation. I promise they get shorter. Um, Trying my best to use less words, not working. Uh, Number two, open your ears. Guard your steps, open your ears. Or said more precisely, listen up. Second part of verse one, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. So what's better than vain, hypocritical, foolish worship? Listening. Listening apparently is. You may have heard this before, but worship is said to be a rhythm of revelation and response. Okay, There's revelation and we respond to it. So there's an aspect of worship that's like a conversation. But unlike most conversation, there's one person that gets to dominate this one, but in a good way. It's usually not good when one person dominates a conversation, but this conversation, it is good. Maybe think about it like this. If you were given the opportunity to sit down, and talk with anybody in history. Anybody you, you admire. Any, it could be a, a theologian, a scholar, a, a leader, a world leader, a, whoever, whoever, an athlete. I, I don't care. You fill in the blank. 
More than likely, in the context of that conversation, who's doing most of the talking? I hope they are. Why? Because you want to hear from them out of respect and awe, and you're just like, I just, I'm, I'm good. Just keep going. Never mind. Just hit record. Just talk. I just, I just want to receive. Why is that? Because you respect them. Because of a certain level of awe. How much more so should our ears be open when it comes to meeting with God? Pastor Thabiti Anyawile put it like this. He said, the Christian worship service is inherently dialogical. This dialogue, however, involves a more important party than any living human. The Lord of the universe speaks during the service. We have the wondrous privilege of being able to speak to him as a community of saints. When God speaks through the exposition of his word, there certainly will be many reactions. But as our sovereign speaks, there should not be an interruption in favor of our pooling our comments and sharing our insights. Our best wisdom is foolishness before our God. Now, that was not an exhortation not to sing. Okay, okay. There are other texts that tell you to sing, okay, so we don't get a pass on that. This would most readily apply to the reading and the preaching of God's Word. This really gets at what I would say is the design and the challenge of expositional preaching. Okay, the design of this type of preaching is to maximize the voice of God and minimize the voice of the preacher. Okay, the challenge is... Preachers like to be heard, but the design is to draw out the meaning of the text and to communicate the text to the people. It's like, let the text drive the car. My job is to explain the text and illustrate the text and apply the text. The text is king. It's not my job to give my opinion apart from the text. I may have to give my opinion on a difficult to interpret text, but I should leave my opinion apart from the text somewhere else. As with anybody else who preaches this word. So when it comes to the preaching of the word, the aim is to hear the voice of God. This is his word to his people. Riken said this, he said, understand that whenever we go to worship, we enter the presence of a holy God who has gathered his holy people to hear from his holy word. It's impossible to overstate the importance of listening in the Bible, not just listening to the Bible, but what the Bible says about listening. Peterson notes that it, uh, you know, what good is a speaking God without a listening ear? What good is a speaking God without a listening ear? And, and in, related to that comment, there's an important key truth that we need to understand about listening, okay? God is the one that gives the ability to listen, to hear. Not just functionally, like that you can't hear, but spiritually. Psalm 40, verse 6, ties directly to this text. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. We are warned about not listening. Proverbs 28, 
verse 9, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. If you will not listen to God's voice, your prayers are an abomination to God. You get to the New Testament and we are told that faith comes through what? Hearing. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So our problem often lies with our lack of listening. Just about every married couple in here can attest to how many problems in marriage come because of lack of listening. Okay, Not a lack of hearing necessarily, but a lack of listening. I can tell you as a pastor how many issues come in the church as a lack, through a lack of listening. Points of confusion, points of criticism. Yes, there are communication issues, but there's also listening issues at times. Listening well is important in all of life. All of life, okay? Trying to coach U10 soccer boys, they barely listen. And you end up with a bunch of them in one pile over here, the, even though you've told them repeatedly, you stay here, you stay there. Not listening. We don't want to be like the people of God or the people that God sent Isaiah to, who apparently kept on hearing but did not understand. God's word in one ear and out the other, so to speak. If it is not evident, this word, God's word, not mine or anyone else's inside this church or outside this church, his word is positioned centrally in his worship. It takes up the most space and informs all of the content. Okay. And we are being exhorted to come and to listen because God is speaking. Part of guarding your steps is opening your ears, opening your ears to listen to God. And let's be honest, this does not happen automatically. If you want to truly listen to a friend or a spouse or a coworker or anybody, you have to prepare for that. You do not sit down for a conversation with a close friend that has some weight to it or with your spouse and sit your phone there so that it dings every few seconds and flashes and you don't have the TV going in the background. That is automatically going to affect your listening. And you can add so many other distractions. There's a preparation to listening well. Just glad that Nicole did not amen at that one. So, appreciate you. So it's a mix of, God, give me the ears to hear, and then I've got to lean into it. Okay, God, give me the ears to hear, and then I've got to lean into that. Next exhortation, guard your steps, which looks in part like opening ears. And next, watch your mouth. Okay, Feels like, like we are talking to kids, right? Okay, why? You know, guard your steps, open your ears, watch your mouth. But God's talking to his people. Adults, children alike. This probably makes up the largest chunk of the text. Verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth and let your words be few. Verses 3 and 7 are parables about using many words. That deal about dreams. He's just using a parable to talk about using many words. Verses 4 through 6 are about making vows, which is done by what? Speaking words. So a lot of the text falls under this exhortation. And the logic here seems really clear. A lot of words is bad. Fewer words are better. Proverbs 17 says that whoever restrains his words has knowledge. Okay? Low word count, knowledge. High word count, don't have knowledge. 
I think it was Lincoln who said, there's a lot of people that have, uh, who this quote has been attributed to, but I think it's Lincoln who said, it is better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and to remove all doubt. So there's a lot of talk in the Bible about a fool talking too much. But the point of those texts in this one is not, well, you just need a lower word count. That's not the point. Okay, You can have a lower word count and still be a fool. This is proverbial wisdom. Oftentimes, if you talk too much, what are you not doing? Listening, right? If you talk too much, you're not doing. Okay? And if you talk too much, you probably care the most about whom? Yourself. So if you talk too much, you're likely not listening because it's hard to listen and talk at the same time. And if you talk too much, you likely care the most about yourself. It's hard to be a person that never shuts up and truly cares about people. It really is. It's hard to be a person that is never quiet and truly cares about people. It's hard to be a person that's never quiet and, and is able to learn about other people, which leads to caring about them. I think, I think the preacher here sit, hits at our self-centered nature, which is expressed by how much we talk or what we talk about. In verse 2, he says, We're not to be rash with our mouths, nor let our hearts be hasty to utter a word before God. Why? Why not be rash and hasty? For God is in heaven and you are on earth. One writer put it well, said, You might want to watch your mouth. You might want to consider the infinite qualitative distinction between God and us. God is infinite. We are finite. He's immortal. We are mortal. He's invisible. We are visible. He's spirit. We're flesh. He's almighty. We're weak. He's holy. We're sinful. He's pure. We're impure. He's omniscient. We're ignorant. He's unchangeable. We're fickle. He's faithful. We are not. He is love in all its fullness. And we are at best partial in our love. We have to remember the tremendous distance in terms of quality and character that exists between us and God. As one early church father put really well, knowing how widely the divine nature differs from our own, let us quietly remain within our proper limits. So we're aiming mostly at corporate worship here. Obviously, in order to heed the last exhortation about opening your ears, you need to heed this one. You can't listen well if your mouth's always running. So this simply reinforces the last one. Okay, we check our words at the door because God's words are better. But I also think there's, there's, there's specific application to prayer, which often happens in the context of the gathering. Jesus said, don't heap up empty words. When he's talking about prayer, don't heap up empty words in prayer. There's no magic to repetition in prayer. And really, there's no magic to lofty prayer language and lengthy prayers that are disconnected from a heart that's desperate for God to do something. There's no magic in that either. So no magic in repetition and no magic if you you have great verbiage when you pray. Lofty verbiage if it's disconnected from a heart that's desperate for God to do something, that's dependent on God to do something. Think about this. Have you ever noticed how simple the Lord's Prayer is? So someone got an opportunity to ask God in the flesh, how do you pray? And he gives the Lord's Prayer. One of the simplest yet most profound prayers. I mean, you got to imagine, you're taking a seat when you ask the question and Jesus goes, 
okay, all right, here we go. You're taking a seat. You're, uh, you don't even have the notebook out and he's done. Like, hang on, repeat that. Was that it? Our father, who's, you know, you're just expecting something more. He gives something so simple. This got, it, this got depth beyond belief. But simplicity. I heard about a young mom with kids, young kids, who said she had two prayers that consisted of three phrases each. So these are the two prayers that I pretty much pray over and over and over. First prayer, help me, help me, help me. Second prayer, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank God smiles on prayers like that. You know, I get a lot of grief around here because of one comment I made like six years ago about the blessing. Okay, so-called blessing before a meal. Apparently, I've not I've not taught any of you the ability to listen to things in context and apply them contextually, but that's fine. So I'm going to pick on the blessing again. Or to be more specific, I'm going to pick on those that are the blessers a lot of times. And I think this text gives me warrant to do so. If not, you can get me afterwards. Okay, you know what's okay to say after a meal? You know what's okay to say after a meal? God, thank you for the food. In Jesus' name, amen. I feel pretty confident that with sincerity of heart, that is sufficient. feel pretty confident that based on Ecclesiastes, that God has given me a good meal that I'm supposed to enjoy And I don't need you to cause it to get cold. Okay? Sometimes brevity is okay. Okay? God, thank you for the food. In Jesus' name. Amen. I look forward to years of ridicule for that one. Off the soapbox. What about vows? Okay, we got to tackle vows here. How does that factor into watching your mouth? Verses 4 through 6. All about making vows. Verse 2 probably relates to making vows. Uh, it's clear, according to verse 6, that your mouth gets you into trouble when you make a vow. And it's a serious thing, okay? No joking matter here. End of verse 6. Why should God be angry at your voice? And then it gets into the destruction of your works. So, how you use your mouth in making vows can result in the anger of God. Let's just all agree, that's bad. That is a bad place to be, so we need to... Okay, how do I avoid that? If foolish worship involves making vows that will somehow make God angry, I want to run from that, and I want to go over here to authentic worship. So, Old Testament people would make vows to God, often in the context of public worship. The problem then, just like now, human nature, it's much easier to say something than it is to do something. It's much easier to promise something than it is to carry through with that something. And God didn't take take this lightly in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 23, he basically says, you make a vow, do it. You make a vow, do it. Walk the talk. I don't want to hear you making vows if you're not ready to come through with that. Now, I don't know how often we're making vows. That, that, that's not a regular... We don't get people coming in here making vows. All right? I know people, I've hear people, I don't know that I've, I don't know that I've honestly ever done it, but you hear people talk about it like, the, you ever done a crisis vow? If you'll just get me out of this, I'll do this. Or if you'll just give me this, then I'll do that. This text would say, be careful with that. Be careful 
promising God something if he would just rescue you out of a situation. What about marriage vows? That, that we probably relate to that. Okay, we've been to weddings. Some of us are married. Make vows in the wedding. Okay. I think this text adds a good bit more weight to that than maybe we originally thought. Because we made those vows before God. In the sight of God, we made vows to one another. What about this? Bring it into the church. Our covenant is like a vow. We have made a vow before the Lord about how we're going to carry out our responsibilities and privileges as members of the church. How lightly have we taken the vow? This is where Jesus would just step in and say, let you yes be yes and you no be no. Yes be yes, no be no. Be careful about what you as a finite creature can promise that you'll do. Be, be careful with that. One theologian summed it up well. He said, better to bribe a judge than to ply God with hollow words. Better to slap a policeman than to seek God's influence by meaningless gestures. Better to perjure yourself in court than to harry God with promises you cannot keep. The full, he goes on to say, the full adorations of our spirit, the true obedience of our heart. These are his demands and his delights. I think the parable of the sinner and the tax collector comes to mind here. Tax collector, what does he do? Heaps up words, a lot of words of self-justification about how great he is. So many words just about himself. He's praying in the temple and he's just talking about himself and how great he is. Okay? There's no brevity to that. There's a lot of words that's just foolish worship. How does a sinner pray? Have mercy on me, a sinner. That sounds like help me, help me, help me, doesn't it? We, we know who came out on the better end of that parable. All right, we need to move on, but there, there's some interpretive comments that I want to make just so you, uh, you get this. Uh, verses 3 and 7, more or less the same. Uh, there's a parable being used there, comparing the, the words of a fool to dreams. Okay, Verse 3 says, a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. That's kind of... Not really a parable that, are, that that makes a lot of sense to us, but to sum it up, the person who gushes empty words in worship is like the person who overworks and it drives his life and he literally dreams about it all the time. Both of those things are vanity. You can kind of start to see a connection with some of the stuff he's already covered in our toil. Okay, this, this vain toil just consumes our lives. So overwork, you just dream about it, it just drives your life. And then, you know, for some reason, people get confused by messenger. You, you may have a little number above messenger there that takes you down to the bottom of your Bible and says angel. Um, it doesn't make a ton of sense, okay? It just says you, you, you don't want to be able to go to the messenger and say your vow is a mistake, which is likely in context the priest in the temple or whomever you went to and made the vow to. You don't want to have to run back when you realize, I can't do what I said. You want to run back and say, hey, da, 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 that was a mistake. I misspoke. I'm sorry. About that. So. Basically better not to vow. Than to basically lie. And have to go tell somebody you, you made a mistake. And have to tell God you made a mistake. Right. So just some interpretive comments there. Alright. Moving on. Uh, guard your steps. Open your ears. Watch your mouth. And finally stand in reverence. Stand in reverence. Verse 7. Again a connection to. Or not again. Verse 7 is, is, is a connection to the overall point of the book. Okay. So in the very first sermon, we went to the end of the book and kind of saw the points. So we're not going to exhaust 
this today because we get to hit it again. But the book of Ecclesiastes ends by saying the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. So that's where the book is trending. Fear God and keep his commandments. But this particular text is framed by fearing God. So guarding your steps, you do that because God is to be feared. Okay, You guard because he's to be feared. That's why that, that frames, that sort of bookends the text. And you do this by opening your ears and watching your mouth. It's not the only thing you do, but that's what this text gives us. So you, you guard your steps because God is to be feared. And you do this by opening your ears and watching your mouth. And you know, this is where we can tend to kind of go, this is Old Testament, fearing God, Old Testament thing. But the New Testament doesn't allow that. Allow that. Hebrews calls God a consuming fire. We see people in Acts 5 struck down at the offering. God is still to be feared. Old Testament, New Testament, same God. Same God. To play off little Lewis here, we are most definitely approaching a God that is good, but not a God that is necessarily safe. Is it Mr. Beaver? Okay, in the background saying that, answering the question, our God is hardly safe, but he is thoroughly good. I found this quote by Annie Dillard talking about worship. It's a little little bit of an overstatement, but I think it makes the point. Churches are like children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT on a Sunday afternoon. It is madness to have ladies wear hat, uh, straw hats. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares and they should lash us to our seats. In case you're new to this, for the believer, fearing God does not mean living in terror. This is a a reverential, respectful awe of who God is. It's it's coming to terms with the enormity of God's character in light of the deficiency of ours. Fearing God is coming to terms with the enormity of God's character in light of the deficiency of our character. This brand of fear results from the discovery that God knows me thoroughly. He knows me better than I do. He knows every dark corner of my mind, every dark corner of my heart, and every deed that proceeds from all of those dark corners. We fear God because we know God knows this about us. And we know that God detests sin in us more than we can even understand. Yet at the same time, A proper fear of God is mixed with an understanding of that, that he knows every dark crevice, every dark deed, the ones we will never share with anybody. Fear is a mix of that with knowing that he loves us in Christ more than we can ever imagine. Psalm 130 says, With you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you, God, are to be Feared. It's like, sounds like a misprint in the Bible. Shouldn't it say, with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are not to be feared. So, you're a forgiving God, so therefore I don't have to fear you. But it says, 
with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, to translate it, I stand in reverence. With you there is forgiveness. Therefore, I stand in awe. So think about it. The enormity of his character in light of the deficiency of ours. With you there is forgiveness. So I stand in reverence. Just why? Why would you forgive me? So believers in Christ, if you know Jesus, if you've confessed him, Lord and Savior, I have no access to God apart from him. You can admit, you can right now admit, acknowledge and voice that God knows the deepest, darkest, ugliest parts of your life. There is not one thing that you have ever done or thought or said that he does not know right now in more detail than you know. You may even you may not even know your motive behind it. He knows that. You can walk into, if you are in Christ, you can walk into this gathering week after week and you can stand in awe. Why? Because you are forgiven in Christ. Because there's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. The forgiven sinner in Christ can walk in and stand in reverence. Hear that again. The forgiven sinner in Christ can walk in and stand in reverence, in just pure awe of, I cannot believe I am allowed to be here. In light of who you are and who I am, that I don't even know as well as you do, I cannot believe I'm allowed to be here. Which should beg the question, Do you fall in that category of forgiven sinner in Christ? Because this type of reverential awe only belongs to people in that category. It only belongs to those who have found forgiveness and relationship with God through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. If that's not you, if you're not in that category, then why not? What's holding you back? Confusion, ask a question. Fear, again, ask a question. Where are you on this? This may be a weighty text for the Christian, okay? But in the end, it's a good text if you know Jesus. But if you don't know Jesus, there really are no good texts. Understand that, Christian. I just thought about that that point this week. There there are some hard texts in the Bible. Even as a Christian, there's some hard texts to receive. But in the end... In Jesus, they're all ultimately good. Like really good, even as hard as they can be. But if you don't know Jesus, then there are no ultimately good texts. Worked out well in the Lord's sovereignty. We have the privilege of closing our time this morning with the Lord's Supper. Because this meal provides an opportunity for everyone. It provides for the, for the believer the opportunity to meditate on God's forgiveness, which allows you to stand in awe. It allows you to sit and go, why am I forgiven? How am I forgiven? And then to respond, not in like, not in guilt, not just focusing on sin, but just go, I'm forgiven and can't believe it. 
And this meal just reminds you of that. Just get to the end of it and you go, I cannot believe that I got to partake of that based on what it means. For the unbeliever, it allows you to observe a people that stand forgiven in Christ. And contemplate why you aren't standing there with them. So if you want to admit that you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you're there, if you, you admit it, so grateful that you're here, hope you feel welcomed. Please just observe a people that can, that can respond to this in awe and go, I just can't believe it. Okay. Let, let these elements as we pass them around just pass by you. Okay. For the believer, reflect on what you heard from the Lord today. Think about have I, when it comes to worship, have I guarded my steps? Are my ears open? Do I watch my mouth? And again, understand if you find things, if you dig up things, if things come out as you're doing that, just remember, forgiven. Forgiven in Christ. He's, he's got that. And, and just be in awe of the fact that, that He's got that too. The fact that you've not guarded your steps, that you've not had your ears open and you've not watched your mouth. So let me invite those up. They're going to be serving, so I'm, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to distribute uh, each of these elements. Uh, once that happens, I will lead us to partake, and then at the end, I'll pray again, and we'll have a chance to respond. Again, revelation and response. We'll have a chance to respond to all of this in song. So let, let's pray together. Uh, Father, we are uh, grateful for your word, and we are especially grateful now. For the forgiveness that we have in Christ that allows us to stand in awe. And we're grateful for this meal that is such a clear picture of what you have done. An act that draws us right back to the cross. To see the ugliness of our sin but the enormity of your grace. So help us all to see that now as we partake of this Bread, which reminds us of your broken body and this cup, which takes us to the shed blood of Jesus that covers over our sins. So lead us now through a time of contemplation and examining, but that ends with reverence. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.